can have Zuckerberg and we can have Gates come and teach a class. I think right now there's about 17 or 20 living Nobel Prize laureates on campus. They, they, they're just like everybody else. We have here James Bond, which is a, a world-renowned brand, well, Aston Martin, so it's two great names. Uh, easily recognizable in the world, so we would like to add Tadek Malek to, to that. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Hi, welcome to episode 66 of Polcast, recorded and produced in Toronto by me, Margaret Bonikowska. This has been a tough summer, with some sad farewells to people who passed. Nina Geister-Zawirska and Edward Wojciak, both journalists and authors, who worked closely with us at Gazeta and dear close friends. Both are and will be missed. May they rest in peace. And somehow this made it necessary for me to take a bit of a break. Summer vacation is the official excuse. But I'm back and back on track here, which means that from this episode, 66 on, as always, you will be able to listen every month to podcast the first ever English language podcast about not only Poland, but also Poles around the world and other people, stories related to Poland. And I have so many stories to tell you. Here are a few of those. James Bond fans, and there are millions of them all over the world, do recognize this music, I'm sure. James Bond would not have been such a hit without his legendary Aston Martin DB5 car. And, interestingly, the car would not have existed had it not been for a Polish engineer from Kraków, Tadek Marek, who designed and built its engine. Now, a group of filmmakers in Poland are working on a documentary film, Steel Heart, which will tell the story of this genius and his extraordinary life. As they say, Tadek Marek's story is one that even James Bond might envy. I'm talking to Andrzej Szlązak, the film director who came up with the idea and did all the research on Tadek Marek's life. How did you come across the story of Tadek Marek? 
Maybe for the beginning, I will explain that Tadek Marek is practically unknown in Poland. He is well known in uh, Great Britain. He's quite well known in Australia, maybe South Africa, English-speaking countries, and probably in the USA as well. Why? Uh, because his uh, major international career started uh, after World War II when he was working in England. So his achievements from before World War II were completely covered during the period from 45 to 89. But how did you come across his story and what made you decide that you do want to make a film about him? I came across um, Tadek Marek or, or existence of such person and that he actually were an engineer who, who built the air engines or design engines for Aston Martin in South Africa because I was an degree as well. And I was living there and somebody just told me that I should be proud of my countrymen who built such a fantastic engine since I'm motoring enthusiast, I start digging. And it took me a couple of years, you know, to, to get to the situation when as a filmmaker, I was ready to put it as um, a project. I started from the beginning, get in touch with the company, with Aston Martin. They were not too helpful, but I started digging in other places. And finally, after about five years of general research, uh, I was able to go to UK and do the proper research. And this is actually what you say in the trailer, that this research in preparation for the film, you followed in his footsteps and that the journey has taken you to what you say, many unexpected places. What were these unexpected places? UK was an obvious place. He was living there since World War II. And then I also knew that he spent his uh, retirement years in Italy. So it was two countries. I was looking for to go and uh, find places, people maybe who knew uh, him, some traces of, of uh, Tadek Marek in those two places. Now, when I arrived in UK, quite unexpected thing happened because I found a family, uh, his descendants, uh, his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. That was uh, quite a surprise because after researching uh, documents, I was not aware that he did, in fact, have any children. That's open new spaces of his life, making him as a person much more interesting uh, character for the movie. Because most of the information which I had, it was about his pre-war career as well as his post-war career as an engineer. And uh, it was not known uh, very much about his personal life. Now, contact with the family obviously opened that space. His family and myself were found together very interesting parts of his life, which were also surprising for his family. Because of the family connections, I have to change my plans, and I did not go to Italy, which become uh, less important in, in, in the digging around his, his life. But I went instead to South Africa, because apparently his son was living there for most of his life. And Tadek Marek was a frequent visitor there. And uh, his personal papers, as well as photographs throughout all his life, were in, in Cape Town. So I have to go there to get to the, the bottom of his personal life, so to speak. Right. So in a way, you went back to where you started, which is where you lived, right? Which yeah. Is such an exactly. interesting connection. <laughs>
yeah, that was one of uh, the uh, opening door factor, factors, if I may put it. That was just, you know, it opened the door for me to, to become friends with the family and uh, I was taken as such, you know. So that allowed me to, to get deeper probably than, uh, than if we didn't have that South African connection. Tell me about what fascinates you about this man, because I know this is not just the fact that he was such a great engineer, but there are other things in his life which you do mention here and there. What is it? What's fascinating about Tadek Marek, or you personally? For me personally, I'm a fan of, of motoring, but also from the bigger fan of motorsports. So that was fascinating for me to discover that Tadek Marek was one of the best rally drivers in pre-war Poland. He was absolutely the top driver, um, apart from being a very good engineer. He uh, won a rally of Poland in 1939, a couple of months before the war. But even more uh, important, he was the first Polish driver to get an official prize in Rally Monte Carlo, one of the most famous rallies in the world. So that in itself was quite fascinating, you know, but uh, I also find out that he was very thorough with, with his uh, uh, driving as well as preparation of, of the car. But at the same time, he was enjoying life. He was 31 when the war uh, broke over. So uh, he was a young man, a young professional in a in, um, quickly developing country with a very um, prominent career in popular sport, you know, the second sport probably in pre-war Poland, uh, immediately after airplanes, that was cars. He was young with great sense of humor, and he liked to party, basically, you know, so he was quite popular person in Warsaw uh, at the time uh, before war. He was clever enough to go through the whole World War II, you know, the story and the beginning of it, you know, with quite daring adventures. He moved from Warsaw to Bucharest, uh, as a lot of people uh, when the war broke over, and um, he rescued uh, his wife uh, from under the Russian occupation, you know, with the Soviet Union after the 17th of, of September um, attacked Poland. You know, his wife found herself under Russian occupation, so he organized a quite daring action actually to take her to a free world, which at that point was a Bucharest, you know, and, and they met uh, a couple of months later at Casablanca. They've been um, kind of delivered to Tangier, which was under British control, basically, and from Tangier they get to Gibraltar and from there to UK. I want to ask you about this James Bond thing. There is this 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 incredible part of his biography, which is his contribution to James Bond movies. First and foremost, obviously, he he uh, created that engine from nothing. He just had an empty piece of paper in front of him, and uh, he started designing that engine, and uh, it was really uh, one of the best engines made in the in the fifties because. The, first car with this engine came in 1958 and that was a great sensation you know when they when they showed the Aston Martin DB4 at London show motor show that was a shock to the whole world so uh, apparently a lot of these cars were ordered on the spot it was very fast car very beautiful very comfortable and very luxurious they start immediately basically working on the new model and the new model uh, DB5 
was even more uh, beautiful than the, than the previous one. And one day, the guys from the movie business came to Aston Martin and start asking questions and start talking to the owner and um, directors. And Tadek Marek was one of the directors uh, in that company at the time. After a couple of months, they came back with the request what they would like to have in that car. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the uh, works which Tadek Marek was dealing with, kind of liaising between uh, the company he was working for, Aston Martin, and the film people. In the end, it was the three cars which were made for James Bond to uh, to show uh, with the movie premiere, the premiere of Goldfinger, because that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about. The movie, the first movie, where the car appeared. But one was an acting car, actually car with all those gadgets which uh, we can see in the movies. When the movie came out, that was a huge sensation and an overnight success, not only for the movie but also for the car, because the car become uh, most recognizable sports car in the world. It become a symbol of the James Bond, of course, but also one of the most desired cars, you know, starting from probably, um, I don't know, 10 years old to 65. Did that mean a big fortune? No, of course not. That, that was a different time. None of the guys was working on those cars. Designers like Tadek Marek, who designed an engine, like Harold Beach, who designed the, the chassis and all the kind of interior of the car, they were unknown to the public. They've never been a celebrity as we understand it today. Tadek Marek was still carry on with his engineering job. It did not really um, directly affect his life, you know, but obviously as as a professional, uh, he suddenly get another uh, dimension. He, he was uh, forever connected with this car. How much was the car? When it came out of uh, in 1958 it was four and a half thousand pounds labor let's say was making something like uh, 90 pounds a month or something of that sort so it put it in the proper uh, thing so it still was expensive i'm sure there's still those cars around somewhere right they're extremely expensive now, especially in the last couple of years. The prices sometimes are reaching about an, um, a million pounds. So depending on obviously conditions, because it's a lot of famous people own uh, the, the car similar to James Bond car or later model, which was BB6. All those cars are now getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, up to a million um, dollars. And I'm talking about cars 50 wow. 60 years old tell me about the film will you do a crowdfunding campaign for the film yes we do we we get the financing um, from uh polish film commission for development of the film so that that was the money i, I use you know traveling around the world and you know, gathering information and all this unique materials because one of the things which were important and it will be in the movie as well is um our found Tadek's personal car, personal Aston Martin. It was only one car um, which he owned himself. And it was a special car because he tuned it in his uh, home garage with a little uh, adjustments which are only in this particular car. So I managed to find that car. Uh, I spoke to the owner. Um, I looked at the car. I've uh, been driven in the car. And uh, we will show that car in, in the film. Now, the film is is a journey, taking the viewer for a journey to uh, reveal uh, Tadek Marek's life, professional as well as uh, private.
how far are you in, in, in the process of making this film? What's your plan for the actual production of the film? Uh, we are, uh, as you know, uh, at crowdfunding um, point. With, we're trying to gather the money to start shooting the movie. So we have, we know everything. We have a script. We, we kind of have everything what we need to start making the movie, but we don't have enough um, money to do that. So that's why we're looking for crowdfunding. Now we w- would like to gather enough money to be able to. Um, shoot the part uh, which deals with Tadek Smarek life in Poland. So that will give us a, a beginning and a, a base to attract the hopefully uh, major production companies uh, in the world because we think that it, uh, this movie and this story has a, a great potential not only for Polish people in Poland uh, or Polish people abroad, but also for all the kind of bothering enthusiasts in the world. You never thought about doing a feature film about him? At the moment, I'm starting uh, writing a book, you know, uh, about his life, uh, which obviously will be kind of base for the script, uh, for the feature film. It is a great possibility because of, uh, his life is full of adventures. If we take a proper part out of it, you know, because obviously it will be difficult in the future to tell the whole story, but that should be also a very interesting movie. I think we will be looking at international because, you know, of, of uh, heavy international involvement in his life as well. It's international appeal. You know, uh, we have here James Bond, which is a, a world-renowned brand, well, Aston Martin, so it's two great names uh, easily recognizable in the world, so we would like to add Tadek Malek to, to that. Next step, it will be a script for, for the feature, and we will be looking for international involvement of the production companies from whether US or UK. That's that's a long project, but that's great. So this is your documentary would be like the stepping stone for something different and bigger. Now that's exactly what it is. You know, the documentary is just revealing a, a lot of his life, but uh, obviously feature will be much more. You yourself as an emigrant who went to South Africa and lived there and worked there and did a lot of interesting professional things, that, was that part of why you got into this story as well? Yes, I think it's it's a very um, powerful factor in all this. I feel uh, close to um, Tadek Marek or other people who went through immigration uh, regardless of why they emigrated, you know, in his case it was war. But I believe that all the immigrants going through the same pattern of settling up in the new country, you know. So you have to start probably lower than your professional possibilities, and you have to kind of find your way there and prove to people around you that you are capable of doing this or that. It takes time, and only after the time, you know, that uh, people start recognizing that yes, there's the foreigner but yeah he knows his stuff you know so uh, it definitely has an impact on me I, I have this kind of an experience and I believe that I do understand uh, hardships which are coming from making a career in, in a foreign country. A week ago this amazing car with Tadek Marek's engine was sold at a Sotheby's auction. Here is Alain Squindo, Sotheby's chief operating officer, talking about the car. 
This is the famous Goldfinger Thunderball Aston Martin DB5. Reversing number plates, the smoke screens, the, the machine guns do in fact bang and they work so repeatedly. Um, worked perfectly. And quite amazingly, this is the car that was built by Aston Martin with those very gadgets. Only about four cars were built for driving purposes, uh, film sequences, and also promotional reasons. Three survive. This is one of those cars. A DB5 is a beautiful, stunning car onto itself. Right. But Without to have that pedigree. Precisely. To have that film provenance of those particular films, for this to be that car, authenticated by the factory, it is the most famous car in the world. Alan thought the car would sell for four to six million dollars. Guess how much it sold for? 6.4 million US dollars. Isn't it amazing that this incredible machine was the product of the great passion of the Polish engineer from Krakow? Please support the film about Tadek Marek so that his amazing story gets told. Oh, by the way, we haven't been properly introduced, Melina. My name is Bond. James Bond. I want to tell you this beautiful story that one of our listeners sent to me. I do believe in beautiful stories, uplifting stories, especially in the times that we live in. There is a little boy in Poland whose first name comes from across the big ocean. Why? Little Michael was named after a man who saved his father's life so that this little boy could be conceived and born. Staff Sergeant Michael Ollis was killed in action while shielding a Polish soldier from a suicide bomber on August 28, 2013 in Ghazni province, Afghanistan. We read in an army account of the August 28th action. This heroic act took place during a massive attack and subsequently insurgents in suicide bomber vests infiltrating the compound. One of the insurgents was firing at Olis and a Polish army officer, Lieutenant Karol Cierpica, who had been wounded in both legs and was unable to walk. Olis, who was not wearing a bulletproof vest, put himself between the two men to protect the injured Polish soldier. Alice fired on the insurgent and incapacitated him, but as he approached the insurgent, the insurgent's suicide vest detonated, mortally wounding him, the report states. The Alice and Cierpica families have grown close over the years. And when his little baby son was born, Carol named him after Alice in honor of his sacrifice. Prior to his son's birth, Karol Cierpica received a teddy bear from Ali's family, which they made using their son's combat uniform. Alice received the Silver Star for his actions, and nearly six years later, in June 2019, his award was upgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest military honor that can be awarded to a U.S. soldier. Alice had also received the Army Gold Medal from Poland, the highest honor a foreign soldier can receive from the NATO ally. In the attack, Alice and one other Polish soldier were killed. Ten Polish soldiers and dozen of Afghans were reportedly wounded. Army Vice Chief of Staff General James McConville said, I was privileged to serve with Michael and Carol, 
when I was the 101st Airborne Division Commanding General in the Regional Command East where they were deployed. Their actions that day in August against a very determined enemy saved many, many lives. The story of the American hero will live on in the son of his Polish battle buddy, whose life he saved in a country far away from both of their motherlands. Few people of Polish origin work at this spectacular university, one of the best in the world. Joanna Lilienthal is a researcher at Stanford University in California in a field which is fascinating in itself. I've known Joanna for many years, but in May I had great pleasure to meet with her at her gorgeous university. She showed me around the campus, including a most impressive cactus garden. And we talked about her journey to and work at Stanford. You are a very, very experienced researcher at one of the most incredible universities in the world, which is Stanford University in California. How did you get there? My way to get into Stanford was not your typical traditional route. I came to the United States when I was 13. I completed all my training, all my studies here, including high school and um, university and graduate school. Um, But my goal was not to get into Stanford. Um, I think I was always driven by what is interesting in the world, not where I would end up. So I ended up in Arizona after coming from Poland when I was, you know, just finished my seventh grade. And because it was a huge culture shock after coming from Poland and Basically, I wanted to be out of there. So I started taking classes at the university, Arizona State University, which enabled me to really graduate high school very early. So I started college at 15. At that time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I I was interested in so many different areas, including um, computers and programming, including mathematics. I really, really enjoyed calculus and and uh, kind of the philosophical side of mathematics. And I always enjoyed being around animals and studying animals. So I knew that it's going to be something analytical, and yet I really enjoyed art and uh, literature and movies. I, I had no idea at 15 what I wanted to do. So I just um, you know, started university, and then my mom got a position at uh, Berkeley. Um, and I, because I was young, I moved with her, and um, I transferred to University of California, Berkeley, where I completed my undergraduate studies. And at that time, my interest solidified more, and I knew that I was really interested in biology as well as art. So I became a double major microbiology and art. After I graduated uh, from university, I ended up working at UC Berkeley uh, Laboratory, where um, I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, I found out that um, working in the lab, um, getting data, and being around really brilliant people is an environment that I really enjoyed. And and then I moved on to work at a 
by a tech company in the in the Emeryville, which is in the Bay Area, and seems like my my interests have solidified in the area of medicine because I, I was thinking that I would go in the direction of becoming a medical doctor. One of my mentors told me, uh, Joanna, look, if you go into medicine and become a physician, you can only help one person at a time. You may be a great physician, but your scope of work will be very local. Whereas if you do research, potentially your discovery can help thousands of people, millions of people. And I decided to pursue graduate studies and and uh, got into a PhD program at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. I studied cancer in general. So this was a molecular oncology laboratory. And I studied what are the different uh, positive and negative forces that make a cancer cell so successful so that it can not only grow, but also metastasize to different places. Because studying that process can help us as scientists develop methods to stop it. Traditional trajectory after you get your PhD is to go into a fellowship or fellow training, postdoctoral training. And that usually in biology and medicine, that involves about additional five to seven years of, um, of research work before you get your faculty position. Um, and so that's what I did. I actually, interestingly, I ended up in Canada to so getting my PhD. I got a prestigious fellowship at uh, University of Toronto slash Amgen Research Institute, um, and I ended up working in the lab of uh, Tak Mak, who is a renowned uh, biologist who was the first one to clone the T-cell receptor um, that um, is very important in the field of immunology, and immunology uh, encompasses pretty much all of medicine, how uh, cancer progresses, how uh, infectious diseases develop, and and whatnot, and everything is governed by immunology. So this was an important discovery, and I was really happy to end up in this lab. But because of um, several, I would say, more personal issues that were going on at the time, I had to cut my fellowship short and uh, have to go back to California to my family. And so I, I only stayed in Canada for one year and I moved back to California and I was actually recruited by a bio, biotech company called Tularic to study inflammatory diseases um, that also include inflammation and cancer. I worked there for about three years and even though this was absolutely fascinating and to, to work in this environment, I decided that I really like myself better in an academic environment rather than industry. So I decided to basically look around and being in the Bay Area, um, there are just so many choices. There's Stanford, there's UCSF, there's UC Berkeley. There's so many um, amazing, uh, brilliant, uh, luminaries in each one of those universities. 
before I could basically go and, and do research. So I decided to write to a few of them, but one laboratory that was my top choice was the laboratory of Professor Stanley Cohen, who is a luminary at uh, Stanford University. Stan Cohen is actually what most people most people refer to him as the father of uh, bioengineering. So anything that, and and everything that you hear right now about recombinant DNA technology and biotech companies, it really started with Stan Cohen. He in he was the first one in I think it was 1974 that has uh, discovered a way to combine a you know, pieces of DNA from different species and produce proteins that um, um, right now we would call this recombinant DNA technology. And this technology can be used to make vaccines, genetically improved crops, um, as well as can be used for gene therapy for many dreadful diseases. Um, and I decided to write to Sam Cohen, and he asked me, what do you want to do? And he actually is a, traditionally, he, he, he is a bacteriologist. So he's a, he, you know, he is a person who studies bacteria. But I told him that I'm interested in cancer research, and um, I would like to do something meaningful using his recombinant DNA technology in bacteria, I'd like to do something meaningful in um, human cells. And I ended up writing a grant proposal, um, which got funding. And the grant proposal was um, to, to use a bacterial screen um, to find regulators of a process called uh, Tumor angiogenesis. Tumor angiogenesis essentially means um, formation of blood supply to tumors. And this is a highly regulated process. Basically, if a tumor does not have blood supply, it cannot live. So it would not metastasize. It would not grow. It would not really um, be a problem uh, that kills people. So I was trying to find regulators of this process, and um, that's essentially uh, how I got to Stanford. What year was that? This was, I came to Stanford 2003. Right, so we're talking 16 years. Now, in those 16 years, how far have you gone from this original interest or original grant proposal to where you are today? You're into this new field or a field I had never heard of before we talked, um, you and me, in, <laughs> in California, and that's translational medicine, which is something that is, I don't know, is that a new area? Um, it's relatively new. It's been around for quite some time, but over the last at least a decade, um, it has become a rapidly growing discipline in biomedical research. So at Stanford, we define translational medicine as discipline in, in, in biomedical research that uh, really aims to expedite the discovery of treatments, of new diagnostic tools by doing multidisciplinary, highly collaborative research. And in simple English, 
basically the goal is to move or translate uh, basic science discoveries more quickly and efficiently into practice so it can benefit a patient. So results from the research done in a laboratory would be used directly to develop new ways to treat or diagnose patients. So that means that you work with doctors, you, you work with medical staff at various clinics and hospitals to expedite the process of from the lab to the actual bedside of a patient. Um, yes, and, and I, I should say that this is a bi-directional process. So this is not only from bench to bedside, but also from bedside to uh, bench. Um, bench meaning laboratory, bedside meaning hospital or sick patient. Uh, so the knowledge that we gain from the laboratory, from the discoveries, obviously, you know, could be used directly to treat or diagnose patients. But without the insight and input and the experience of a medical doctor, a physician, scientists would not really understand what is the experience of a patient it's an overall problem in our society that people don't communicate well sometimes and it, it causes problems, right? But especially in the area of biomedical research in the lab. So when we are talking about scientists who work in the laboratory and medical doctors who work in the clinic, there is a vast communication gap. Physicians and scientists to start with, they're trained very differently with very, very different objectives in different mindsets. And we really talk almost different language. So to me personally, when I talk about translational medicine, it's not just moving discoveries uh, to the clinic. It is really about translating the knowledge, even the language, the way that we communicate with each other between the clinical world and the basic research world. Are there any specific examples of how that has already changed something? Um, well, I mean, the, you can see examples all over the world right now because translational medicine is not just specific to Stanford. This is something that, um, you know, is a major growing discipline everywhere around the world. So, you know, when you think of transmittable diseases uh, that have made the news in the last decade, like Zika virus, for instance, diseases like cancer, for instance. There's been so many discoveries that have been made uh, with the use of translational medicine because, for instance, the whole field of immunotherapy and cancer, where you take cells from a patient who is ill with cancer, and you change those cells in a way that patients' own immune system can now be better equipped to kill those cancer cells. That's all translational medicine. We would not really know that if the scientists and the physicians didn't collaborate with each other. So it's really a team effort. You, Science nowadays cannot be done in the very old days, like, I don't know, in the 70s or 60s. You know, you would think of a scientist wearing a white coat, doing their research and announcing to the world that they have found something um, incredible. Right mm -hmm. now, that's not how science is done. It's done in very multidisciplinary teams where you have 
experts from many different fields, from many different disciplines to make discoveries that can help a human patient, you really have to have both scientists from different disciplines sometimes, and you have to have the physicians treating the patient. You have to have uh, many times engineers who design special medical devices or special methods that um, can be used to to assay uh, specific experiments. You need to have uh, computer scientists, bioinformatics experts who can look at the trillions of data points and can make sense out of it and write algorithms so that we can learn about um, what all this data means. Joanna, Stanford is like heaven. For a lot of people, when they think Stanford, <laughs> they think amazing. It's like Harvard, Yale. Is it really that great? Well, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, uh, but I'm actually biased in both directions because I was trained at UC Berkeley, which is the biggest rival of Stanford. So I'm just a little facetious when I say, you know, Stanford is great um, because I'm supposed to be true to my alma mater, uh, Berkeley. But uh, truth of the matter is, yes, Stanford has one of the most beautiful campuses in the country mm -hmm. and incredible weather all year round. So it's kind of like paradise. But uh, the one thing that's truly unique about Stanford is in part due to its proximity to Silicon Valley, Stanford has become a sort of incubator for Silicon Valley itself. So, you know, those companies that made, uh, you know, famous headlines like Google and um, uh, Yahoo and YouTube and Instagram, all those companies really have their roots at Stanford. It's Stanford alumni or Stanford student, students. Um, it's, it's where it all happened. And um, um, even right now, like Stanford sometimes features courses by those true tech luminaries. Um, so, you know, we can have Zuckerberg and we can have Gates come and teach a class. And that's something that's very, very unique about Stanford. And besides that, the campus is really laid back. Like you have all those, um, I think right now there's about 17 or 20 living Nobel Prize laureates um, on campus. And, you know, they don't look pretentious. They, they, they're just like everybody else. I mean, I can have lunch with a Nobel Prize winner and uh, we can just talk about um, politics or we can talk about the flowers growing outside. And no one even knows who is a Nobel Prize laureate or who is a student or, or a technician. So it's this wonderful place with extraordinary, brilliant people who are very laid back. It, I think it's a wonderful place of the world. The melting pot of cultures, melting pot of brilliant thoughts. Um, so yeah, it is sort of like paradise and it has palm trees too. To learn more about Stanford and translational medicine, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. I'd like to encourage those of you who are on Facebook 
to regularly visit our podcast Facebook page. You can find lots of amazing stories there. They're all chosen and posted there by Tomek Knyat, with whom we created Polcast and worked together on it until episode 64. And even though Tomek has simply no more time to be a co-producer of the podcast, he still takes care of the Polcast Facebook page. Thank you, Tomek. And to all of you, really visit this Facebook page because every day there are numerous fascinating stories there. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we're going to share with you two ideas for using up leftover chicken, Polish style. In our house, we seem to be eating more chicken these days. It's lean and healthy, and my cardiologist just loves it when we eat less red meat. But since most days there are only two of us, when we roast a whole bird at home or bring back a rotisserie chicken from the grocery store, we always seem to have half of the bird left on the cutting board. If we only have a few ounces of chicken left, we'll clean the carcass, or I'll clean the carcass, and put the remains in the freezer to bring it back when we have two or three cups of chicken meat accumulated. Well, Peter's not a fan of just reheating odds and ends out of the fridge. That's for sure. So he's always asking me to find new ways of repurposing the leftovers to create an entirely new dish. The goal is to change the texture and add new flavors. It pays to have a meat grinder or a food processor, even if you only use it a few times a year. Or if you have a standing mixer, you can get a meat grinding attachment. It's a very versatile kitchen tool. Here are two ways of preparing leftover chicken Polish style. Both are easy and delicious. The first is chicken meatballs Polish style. And yes, you heard me right, chicken meatballs. They're very Polish. To start, you'll need three or four cups of twice ground cooked chicken meat, white bread that has been soaked in milk, butter, two egg yolks, breadcrumbs, parsley or dill, a sliced lemon, and as always, salt and pepper to taste. Mix the ground cooked chicken meat with the bread and season. Mix in the butter and egg yolks. Form the meat into small golf ball sized balls and roll in the breadcrumbs. Saute the balls in oil until they're hot all the way into the middle. Arrange on a warm serving dish, garnish with parsley or dill and lemon slices. These go really well with a green salad and your favorite vegetables. Now, wasn't that easy? Our second recipe today is a chicken and bacon stir fry. Everything is better with bacon. Isn't that what the big chefs on TV always say? Start with six slices of bacon, cut into one inch pieces, two cups of coarsely chopped cooked chicken, chicken broth, cooking oil. We like canola because it can get real hot without smoking. Chopped green onions, maybe two cups of cooked rice, fresh dill if you can get it, and as always, salt and pepper to taste. Fry the bacon until just crisp. 
drizzle the broth over the chicken meat to moisten it. Heat your oil in a large frying pan or wok and throw in the chicken, half the dill, the bacon, the green onion, and rice. But add the rice slowly until your desired proportion is reached. Now stir fry this mixture just until it's hot. Season with salt and pepper, sprinkle the remaining dill on top, and serve with your favorite veggies. Quick, healthy, and delicious. We hope you enjoy these two favorite ways of using up leftover chicken. The full recipe for these dishes and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on February 25th, 2014. Smacznego! On Polcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. I treat them all as our Polcast family. So, as in all families, we care about how family members do and what's up in their lives. So, as always, I'm happy to update you on Polcast's community members' new achievements. In the last episode of Polcast, I talked to Tomasz Jankowski about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the future of money and information. If you haven't listened to this conversation, I encourage you to do so. Episode 65. Since then, Thomas has become the CEO of Stealth Startup, and I'm happy to inform you that he has just won three 2019 International Business Awards in Vienna. As he wrote on his Facebook I'm beyond excited and humbled to announce that I was named the winner of a Gold Stevie Award as the Maverick of the Year, as well as two Silver Stevie Awards in the Innovator of the Year and Marketing Executive of the Year categories. Congratulations, Tomek. And at the end, a little bit about money. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. Well, our crowdfunding campaign completely crashed and it needed to be rebuilt from scratch. I do appeal to you to contribute to this campaign. Please visit the patrons page at mypolcast.com support. So please support Polcast. Go to mypolcast.com support and make a pledge. Also, when you visit our website, where you can find a lot of additional information, multimedia and links. Please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If there's anything interesting that you know that I should cover on podcast, well, believe me, I have a long list of things to cover and stories to cover, but I'm always happy to listen to your suggestions. Please let me know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And I leave you with a beautiful song about the beginning of the fall. Well, let's face it, the summer is ending and we will meet again in the fall. This song, Mimozami Jesień się zaczyna, is sung by Czesław Niemen, who died 15 years ago, one of the most amazing legendary Polish singers and songwriters, whose music is dear to all Poles who live all over the world.
Ah, ah, ah. 